0: morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here and committing to your practice and to supporting the practice of others. We've been thinking and talking a lot about commitment lately at the monastery, because Hogan is doing a whole teaching, not just here but in other venues, about uncovering the heart's aspiration what is our heart's deepest aspiration for our life, and then making a commitment to fulfilling that, or at least beginning to fulfill that. We are not in charge of the time frame. Um, The time frame is unknown to us. The outcome may be hidden from us too, but we make a commitment which could go on for lifetimes or be carried on by our children or by somebody else who's inspired by us. Also, I was thinking about commitment because of, finishing writing the vows book, and because we had a five precepts ceremony here while Hogan and I were gone, and several people who took the five precepts ceremony told me that it was a very moving ceremony, unexpectedly moving ceremony, that they kind of thought they knew what it was about, and they'd just go through the ceremony because they'd study the precepts, but that it really opened a door rather than closing a door, right? We often think, okay, done with that closed door move on to something else but taking the precepts is opening a door into a whole lifetime of exploring the precepts. Also I just came back from a trip so I was at the University of uh, it was at the Rochester Zen Center retreat center called Chapin Mill which is outside of Rochester at a um, workshop for physicians put on by the University of Rochester and they made a commitment at the University of Rochester to teach mindfulness to as many people as they could in the medical school. And now they have taught mindfulness to medical students, residents, and 80% of the faculty. They've been doing that for 10 years. So some of us from the Portland program went to learn more from them about what they've found is beneficial for physicians. It turns out we have a pretty good program in Portland. I can't take any credit for it. Uh, Jomon, whom, whom you may know, Laura Martin, and her teaching partner, De- Denise Gore, are certified mi- mindfulness-based stress reduction teachers, and they have been enrolled in a group that works with physicians. Uh, and it, it's actually working well, but I think there are some elements that we can add beyond, beyond just meditation to deal with the particular kind of inner critic that physicians develop. As a result of the fact that if they make a mistake they could permanently damage or kill someone. So you get a pretty ferocious inner critic if you're a physician because the consequences of making a mistake are huge and we will all make mistakes. When I teach medical students I say you cannot go into this field unless you are willing to live for the rest of your life with the knowledge that you you cause permanent damage to someone or kill them because we are not perfect medicine is not perfect and the bodies that we're working with are not perfect they don't always react in the way that we we were taught they should by the treatment we give right so we have to learn to live with mistakes but unfortunately physician the suicide rate in physicians is very high so these the help for physicians is very important i'm sure you would like to know that your physician when you go to see them is feeling like a little bit cheerful maybe or happy about their work and not suicidal, right? Just like when you get on the airplane, you'd like to know, know, you'd like to open the cockpit and say, hey, everybody, pilots all feeling good. (laughs) Nobody feeling suicidal in there. (laughs) So we need to help people. We need to help each other. We can all fall into despair. The world is, if you look at it from one point of view, in terrible shape. And it doesn't look like it's going to get any better. It looks like we're in a cycle of destruction and, and more difficulties. But if you really know about history, this has always been true. There's always been cycles of times of peace and then times of chaos and war. <clears throat> so we just happen to be entering one of them, and we don't know how long it will go on. So there I saw a commitment to helping physicians. A very strong commitment on the part of all the people that were there to helping physicians. Three of the physicians were from Japan. They work in palliative care, and in Japan, you no, you don't admit weakness. So I had a, a physician friend who was going to Japan, and he doesn't drink. And I said, "Oh my gosh, my gosh! He does business in Japan. What are you going to do? Because all business is transected, trans, trans, transacted." transacted over um, drinks, all important business. And people get quite drunk, I drink a lot. And I said, well, you could." I've heard that you could say you have a stomach ulcer and so you can't drink. And he said, no, 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 that's a sign of weakness. I, I cannot do that. So what I do is I say that I'm, I'm on call for emergencies. So I have to keep my mind clear so I can't drink in this meeting. And they, everybody accepts that, that's great. If it comes from strength, purpose, helping other people, that's fine. So uh, everybody can get into trouble, and we have to make a commitment to help who we can help. Hmm? Then I went to Zen Mountain Monastery uh, and taught at Zen Mountain Monastery, and looking at Zen Mountain Monastery through the lens of commitment, I see it as a place where people are committed to holding a place for as long as it's useful, holding a place where people who are having trouble can come. Anytime time it's needed, to really look at what's going on through practice, as practice, and with the help of the support of the sangha and using the tools of the practice. And then I went to my ex-husband's 80th birthday in Colorado. And I looked at his life, and, and actually they people came from around the world and sent in videos uh, honoring his work. Which was a work of commitment. So I could see his life of commitment to environmental work, to ecological work. He's called the father of population biology. And his commitment to bringing divisive factors together. So within the environmental uh, arena, uh, the ecological arena, there are people who are dedicated to saving their favorite thing, right? So I want to save stray dogs. My sister takes in feral cats, kittens and raises them. Other people want to save old growth and other people, you know, have a commitment to coral reefs. But because funding is not unlimited, these groups fight with each other. And so that doesn't help, right? So Michael uh, people testified to the fact that that Michael has instilled environmental work with a love for nature. Originally it was all statistics. You know, how many species are there in a certain plot of land? Very dry. And many people testified to the fact that he brought uh, nature back into it and made it part of a scientific field of study, and that he brought in spirituality, that he instilled environmental work with spirituality, and specifically with love. his, His mantra is, we have this work to do because we love nature. And nature loves us. And if we we love something, we want it to thrive. If we love something, we want it to thrive. So uh, Michael, my ex-husband, had a fairly troubled childhood, divorce, alcoholism, and his stepfather, and so on. And nature was the one place of complete acceptance and support. So he lived in San Diego, and he would go out in the canyons when he needed to get some respite. And he, he loves the desert, he loves chaparral, he loves lizards, he loves snakes. One picture I showed, that I sent in pictures because they did a whole video show of his life, and um, still pictures in that, in that presentation. And uh, the most popular picture that I sent uh, out was, we used to have sitting in our house in San Diego, dry area, a house that he built, and um, on Sunday mornings, And we had a very pleasant sit, and we were having um, some tea and snacks. And one woman went outside into the backyard and came back in screaming. And she said, I was so calm after meditation. I thought I was ready to die, but I'm not. There's a huge rattlesnake out there. And Michael, being a herpetologist, got this gleam in his eye, and he went out the back door, got a forked stick, and captured this gigantic rattlesnake, I mean this big around. And he's holding it you know, looking rather pleased with himself <laughs> in our backyard. Uh, and people love that picture because he loves snakes. Yeah? He, he loves reptiles. And so he wants them to thrive, but not in our backyard. So he took it you know, miles away. If we love something, we want it to thrive. And often that love arises because something gave us comfort and support in a time of stress, distress in our life. So he's actually looked at that. Often people want to save kittens because cats were important to them. My sister, middle, middle child, you know, reasonably unhappy as a middle child, she used to sit on the radiator in our house with our cat on her lap, and she would sniff it, and she said it smelled like popcorn. And that was comforting to her. So, of course, she has cats right in her house. She loves cats because cats gave her love and a sense of love for herself. So going to the reunion to my ex-husband's 80th birthday was also part of a commitment that I made in the form of marriage vows 50 years ago, marriage vows to love and to honor him. It doesn't take the form anymore of being married to him, but it means that I completely support him and his new wife. So these vows have continued through divorce. It was hard to maintain them through divorce, as people of divorce know. Um, and then through each of our remarriages. So I really saw that as, as commitment, ongoing commitment. And we also had a teacher's meeting this weekend. And we were looking at areas of concern in our lives, in all of our lives. And then action items. Action items are my favorite. If I'm in a meeting, I'm always ready. I'll, I'll, I'll do the action item list. I'll give that to me, and, I'll, and then I'll give it back to everybody, what we're all going to do. Because people can complain and grouse about something not being right. But they seem to think it's somebody else's responsibility to fix it, right? Dano, would you please fix the world for me? Would you please fix the world for me okay. so I can be happy? That's your job, to fix the world for me, (laughs) so I can be happy, right? We think, oh, yeah, there's all these problems, but we want somebody else to fix them. You'll do it. (laughs) You'll make me feel totally safe, comfortable, and loved the rest of my life. (laughs) So two areas that we looked at of concern for heart of wisdom specifically and here climate change and you know we did a month of climate change studies both downtown and here but one thing we omitted was to have people actually write out their commitment what are they going to do so it's different it's different to have an internal commitment and to put it out there and have everybody see it the studies show you are much more likely to maintain a commitment if it's done publicly so i I, I publicly, my commitment for this year is no plastic bags from grocery stores and no plastic bottles of water or drink. Now, you know, I'm already failing because in Colorado I didn't have my, my little bags that I have tucked in my purse, so I had to take some plastic bags. So then what do you do with them, right? And then uh, on a the long airplane flight, the only thing to drink they bring you is a bottle of water. What do you do? So we know when we take a vow, or we take a commitment that we are going to fail, and then that makes us encouraged to renew our commitment and be creative about those situations, right? Not to forget the grocery bag. Not and and the, one of the ways I remind myself here is if I go in and check out groceries and I realize I forgot my bag, I just very embarrassing. I have to say, I've got to run out to the car and get my bag, and everybody behind you is like. Eh. But you can pay for it, and move it aside, and then go out and get it. So we look at climate change, and I think we need to look at it again. We need to educate ourselves about climate change and make commitments, personal commitments, each person here and downtown, and also diversity. Looking at the issue of diversity in our sangha, and how are we unconsciously somehow not encouraging People who are different from us in other ways—they could be Muslims, they could—who would like to come to learn to meditate, Mormons. They, they could—they could not be white and middle class. They could be transgender. You know, there's a lot of areas of diversity. And one person actually read an article about young Asian American people. So these are people in their early 20s who Asian Americans feel left out because they're not interested in their family's religion, even if it was Buddhism, because generally they don't understand what it was. It was some kind of chanting, if you ask them, some kind of chanting in, in front of a box that they would open up to the ancestors. And they're not that, they don't relate to that. But also, they don't feel, because they're, they're considered ethnic Buddhists rather than convert Buddhists. All of us are convert Buddhists. See, we're in a class already then they don't quite feel comfortable in our situation either. So how can can we get educated about this, and what do we want to do about it? So a few people made commitments to begin moving forward and at least educating ourselves about these issues more. Because once you get educated, I think you can't ignore it anymore. No commitment, no move forward. Commitment, move forward we don't commit, then it just becomes endless complaining. And it's very interesting, complaining. I, when I was sick, I listened to some talks by Eckhart Tolle and some other spiritual leaders. Um, and Eckhart Tolle has a short talk on annoying people. It's a really good talk. And it gets into complaining. And he's very direct, Eckhart Tolle. He said, complaining is a way of putting ourselves above, above others. Oh, yeah, we have a precept about that. Complaining is a way of saying, I know better than this person. They're wrong, which means I'm right. right? So it really, really helped me look at complaining. And I'm really working with the, the beginnings of complaining in my mind. And so what's interesting is maybe I'll complain about oh, somebody didn't something didn't do something right. And then my next step is, OK, I'll do it the right way. But that doesn't help anybody, right? It helps me feel more comfortable with, oh, now it's done the way I wanted it done. But it doesn't help another person. So to take the next step, which is I will help teach this person what I know about this and then give them the option of changing what they're doing. So that extends it out to benefit some, potentially benefit someone else. So I'm really working now with this complaining as a way of putting ourselves up above others. And turning that into, can I help educate someone about what I know about it? And then they can make maybe a more informed decision. And of course, the inner critic says from within, this person that I live in is wrong. And I know what's right. I know them better than they know themselves. And it's a verbally abusive voice within claiming that it's right, right. We would not tolerate that from the outside, a verbally abusive person telling us what to do. We wouldn't tolerate that from the outside, but we do from the inside. Very peculiar. This week here at the monastery, we had a talk by Dave Hansen on carbon offset. He's part of a movement, an agreement, between the Episcopal Diocese of Olympia, which is essentially western Washington state, and the Episcopal Diocese of an area in southern Philippines, which is very poor and has been hit by devastating typhoons. And they've worked out a mutually beneficial way to offset carbon, and at the same time support poor local farmers. It's a very interesting talk, and uh, I'll recommend that we we do it again. He did it downtown, and he did it here, if anybody's interested in hearing it. So I'll explain it briefly. Wood fixes carbon. So we want to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere because it's contributing to climate change, heating up, and so on. So wood is a way to fix carbon and keep it out of the atmosphere unless you burn the wood, right? Then it goes back into the atmosphere. So we look at around us, okay, how have we fixed carbon in this building? Oh, lots of ways. So this floor, when we laid it down, that was a way of, pulling some carbon dioxide out of the air and putting it into our floor. Now, uh, you could say, well, that's really generous. You have other people plant trees to offset your carbon that you've produced. Um, But what they have done is they've created an incentive for farmers not to cut down trees. So here in Oregon, we're very aware that trees are valuable. Right? Trees are very valuable. I looked it up online. And a dug fir has an estimated value of between $1,000 and $26,000. If you do it by square inch, it's way above that. And you factor in damage and so on. But at least it's several thousand dollars. So if you're poor, Philippine farmer, and you look out the door and there's a tree. Oh, but it's a mahogany tree. So what is a mahogany tree worth that grows very fast in the Philippines, mature in 25 years? So this is, I looked that up, and there's information on that. A tree cutter, most, like in a, most likely an illegal one, would get about $50 for a mahogany tree cut out of the rainforest. When it crosses the port, it fetches about $1,200. When it reaches the final destination, mo- most likely a developed country like the US or Europe, and increasingly countries like China, the same mahogany tree is worth about $18,000 in finished furniture. This is the kind of figure that gets recorded in the national accounts or GNP figures of a country. It's ironic that a tree becomes valuable in economics only when it is cut down. That's money talking, and of course it's easy to see people who benefit the least are the local communities where the tree came from. So the cutter got $50, But but when it goes, as it moves on, people make more and more money from it. And it's easy to see why such a narrow definition of a tree is inadequate. And so then they, they look at the value of a mahogany tree from the point of view. This is a tree, not a mahogany tree, but somebody from the University of Calcutta, so probably a tropical tree. Uh, so an ecologist uh, at University of Calcutta says if a tree lives for 50 years, it generates $31,000 worth of oxygen, $62,000 worth of air pollution control, $31,000 worth of soil erosion control and increase in soil fertility, $37,000 worth of water recycled, $31,000 worth of animal shelter. So altogether, a tree is worth about 196,000 Singapore dollars, article from Singapore. Now, Dave calculated the carbon emissions from his trip to the Philippines. So he volunteered to take his knowledge and expertise from the business life he's lived about quality control and how do you assess quality in a in a program and he calculated the carbon emissions from his trip got a cheap flight about $800 round trip to the Philippines so from his seat he was able to ca- calculate that it was 3.2 tons is that right of car- of co2 from that flight 3.2 tons of co2 And so, if he offset that by buying a tree to be planted in the Philippines, which is part of this agreement, um, it would be about the tenth to offset that CO two would be about eighty three dollars, which is about a tenth of the cost of his ticket. Which would be three and a half trees planted in the Philippines. They they if you donate twenty five dollars, you get a tree planted in the Philippines. But it's a very interesting program because. You get a canopy tree planted, like a mahogany tree planted. But underneath that, they plant crop trees. So th- and they plant them where the farmers are living. So the farmers are planting cocoa trees and coffee trees and coconut palms under the canopy. And they depend on the canopy for shade and moisture and so on. So the farmer's incentive is to grow the crop trees and to make, earn money from growing those crops. And then they're also invested in keeping the forest intact because that enables them to have ongoing income. So it's a very, very interesting, mutually beneficial arrangement. Now you could say, well, that's still screwed up. You know, If you want to complain about it, you could say, because what we really need to do is change our consumption here and our carbon output here. Of course. But if we don't take any steps, we're not doing anything. We're just complaining. right? So we can look all around in five programs, like this beautiful program where we could say, every time I fly in an airplane, I will buy three trees or four trees in the, through this program. Great. They created the program. Dave's taking care of quality assurance. Wonderful. I don't have to worry about it. I do that. And then I figure out what I'm going to do next. So our mindfulness practice this week at the monastery is to be aware of the things that we touch and use that come from trees. Right? So you just take a minute and look around. The most obvious thing is wood and paper. Right? And we love it. We love the wood floor. Because we love trees. All right, so you see, we want to preserve something we love. So to be aware, and I encourage you to take up this practice for a week, aware of things that you touch and use that come from trees. And then, of course, you could expand that awareness to trees, but we kind of already love trees. But do we love our wood floor? Do we love our wooden table? Do we love our wooden pencils? Can we really open our heart of love to that as the tree serving us? I love the Dictionary as a Dharma book. And if you look up commitment in the dictionary, it has two aspects to its definition. The first is the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause or activity. Synonyms, dedication, devotion, allegiance, loyalty, faithfulness, and fidelity. Not values that we talk about a lot in society these days. the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause activity, devoted, loyal, faithful. And then the second definition is an engagement or obligation that restricts freedom of action. Synonyms, responsibility, obligation, duty, liability. Interesting, huh? So I always talk about Zen being the tension of opposites, being able to hold the tension of opposites in our life which most people are unwilling to do. It's either good or it's all bad. All All good, all bad. But here we have a lovely example. And she's taking action, right? She could sit there and say, ah, well, the talk's almost over, who cares? But no, she has a commitment. You know, a mom- lot of them are momentary, but that's okay because they reflect a larger commitment about our work here. So we have this lovely example of the, temp- of the tension of opposites in the word commitment. So a commitment means a dedication of our life energy, whether that's money or time. Or mental, or mental thinking, like Dave is thinking out this whole quality assurance project for the for the Episcopal Diocese, or muscle when you get out get out and plant the tree. So a commitment means a dedication of our life energy in whatever form to a cause. It also means that we cannot use that energy for another purpose, such as planting our own garden or a vacation or many other uses, going to a movie or something else. So a commitment necessarily involves giving something up. So we have to decide, is it worth it? We also have to look at our commitments. And if you would just consider now a few of your commitments, just close your eyes and think, what am I committed to? What am I really committed to? Search the areas of your life, work, family, spiritual practice, entertainment, nothing's off limits, creativity, what am I really committed to? Okay, and then we have to consider, is this a commitment to primarily benefit me? There's nothing wrong with that, but we have to consider, is this a commitment to primarily benefit me? So review your commitments that you came up with. Are these commitments, and I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, <laughs> are these commitments, commitments that I made primarily to benefit me? Or do they have an aspect of benefiting others? So at our teacher's circle, one person reported on uh, Buddhist aspects of how to relieve depression, let's say. And one of them was bodhisattva practice. Practice, Take your energy and put it out there to help others. Or is my commitment to benefit a larger circle of people or other beings? There's nothing wrong with benefiting oneself. That's important. So doctors get burned out and commit suicide because they're not making a commitment to their own mental health. They're giving everything away to everybody they take care of. A very common problem in physicians. Everything is this, and nothing is receiving. So we have to, we have to take care of ourselves. That's why we do loving kindness practice for ourselves first before it overflows into uh, to others. But when there's the arising of any reluctance or refusal to commit, we have to look deeply into our own mind. What is that reluctance based upon? So if I say, well, the program in the Philippines, you know, that's very nice, but it doesn't really address the root of the problem, and I don't know, I don't. You have to look at that. Okay, what, what's going on in there? Why am I not committing to this simple thing? And I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying any time that arises, well, the climate crisis is too overwhelming. You know, there's no step that I could take that would make a big difference. You have to look deeply into your own mind. What is your mind saying? Why is it saying that? Also, I think it's very important, think of the people you admire. Bring to mind a few people. They could be people you know, that's, that would be nice. People that you know personally that you admire. And then people on the world scene. Could be people that have died. So now ask the question, were those people committed? So do we admire people of commitment? And then the next question is, are we willing to become a person of commitment? So in our own lineage, Dogen Zenji. We admire Dogen Zenji. Was he committed? Oh my gosh, the guy was over overcommitted, I mean, crazy committed. Or I admire Albert Schweitzer, who only a few of you may know who, who that was. But he was crazy committed. You know, gave up his whole life and career in Europe and went and served people in the Belgian Congo. So do I admire committed people? And if so, am I willing to become one myself? Now, the definition said that we have to give something up to be committed to something else, right? We all know that, whatever we commit to, Practicing piano until we become reasonably proficient at it. We have to give up something else that we could do during that time. But now turn it around, because the mind always is attracted to the negative oh, I got to give this up. Turn it around. What do we gain through commitment? And don't answer admiration. <laughs> <laughs> what do you gain through commitment? So, an example is the precepts. What do you gain through commitment to the precepts, to making a commitment to the precepts? Anybody who's done it, what do you feel like you've gained? Protection, a little bit of protection from your own stupidity. Yeah? A clear conscience. Building trust. Building trust in community. Mm -hmm. Stability in your life. Stability in your life. Anybody else? Faith. Faith. Can you explain that a little bit more? A faith in the process uh, of taking the precepts and the inevitable difficulties that will come forward, yeah, to help you deepen your commitment and get confidence in this works, let's say. Yeah. Anybody else? What, what have you gained from taking the precepts? I know who you are because you have a bib on or a, <laughs> a wages on. Dano. What have you gained from taking the precepts? I'll let you think about it for a minute. Some, yeah, go ahead. A sense of belonging. Here. belonging. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So a sense of community. And people talked about a, a, a community of, that you can trust. Yes. Yes, as my stepdaughter said, at least they're trying. <laughs> at least they're trying, right? Yeah. To keep the precepts. If you've made that promise. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> yeah. At least they're trying. Anybody else? And you have a connection with them because you've made that agreement together. The same agreement, yeah. And you're working on it together, right? Anybody else? I want to say freedom. freedom from, freedom from um, overthinking, things. overthinking things. Yes, isn't that great? I love that. I walk down the street, I see something that money maybe that belong, doesn't belong to me. I don't have to overthink it. I just say this doesn't belong to me, and I made a promise to try to give it back to whoever it belongs to. Yeah. Simplicity. It brings simplicity. It brings the Court every time you face the right. <laughs> you don't have to face the inner Supreme Court every time you're faced with some ethical dilemma. <laughs> no matter how small. I mean the small ones drive us crazy too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a kind of simplicity. It's a relief. I found it a relief to really commit to the precepts. Okay, I can let go of all the back doors that I want to keep open. Right? Oh, maybe I need. Maybe I'm going to need to lie in a certain situation, (laughs) so I'm not going to promise not to lie. Or maybe in a certain situation I want to. I want to. When this is not true anymore, but when I was younger, maybe I want to use my sexual wires to wiles to get what I want. Right? (laughs) No, I promised I wouldn't do that. Yeah. So it does. It just there's a certain relief to lay down a burden of the constructed self and say, yeah, I'll do this. Yeah. Well, it sets an intention. For me, it sets an intention. An intention. In my life, and it doesn't mean I'm always going to achieve that, but I do have the intention Sure. and Uh-huh, yes. And, and, and I'm very well aware of it when I miss the... Uh-huh, I, so... I, uh-huh. So it creates an awareness, a foundation of awareness of ooh, maybe that was an aspect of the precepts I need to look at a little more clearly. Yeah. Satisfaction, satisfaction. Mm-hmm. that you set a goal, goal. and you've to set that foundation. yeah to create that foundation. Yeah. Thank you. So the mind is goes to the negative. Oh, what am I going to lose by making these commitments? Or How is the inner critic going to complain or get me because I made these commitments? But really, there's so much to be gained. And that's what people discover. Oh, it's a lifelong exploration. And it's so interesting. And I have these guidelines that I can use. There's another benefit of commitment. And this is a lovely quote that Hogan actually gave me. that's in the Vows book. And this is from uh, W.H. Murray who was head of a Scottish Himalayan expedition. So it's an expedition to the Himalayas. And we know people die every year, right? A bunch died already this year, Mount Everest. And he said, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves also. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issue from the decision. Raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidences, some of them difficult, meetings and material assistance which no person could have dreamed would have come their way. So when we make the commitment, we're opening a door into a huge potential source of help and support. Dogenzenji says, the place is right here, and the way leads everywhere. The place is right here, and the way leads everywhere. Actually, he says, because the place is right here, and the way leads everywhere. The limits of what can be known cannot be known. Our potential becomes unlimited when we make a commitment and also there's a response, an automatic response. from You can call it providence. You can call it whatever you want. It's a karmic truth. So whether you commit to a new form of practice, let's say I'm committing to not complaining And turning a complaint in my mind instantly, as, as soon as I catch it, into gratitude. So I'll give you an example of a trivial kind of thing that my mind would say, oh, I don't like the shoes she's wearing. Well, who cares? But my mind says that. And that's negative energy that I'm projecting. So I have to turn it instantly into, I am grateful that you are in my life and creating my life. I would not be alive without you, all of you. So that's my current practice. So whether you commit to a practice, say, not complaining or loving kindness or facing down the inner critic, make a firm commitment. Or if you commit to take good care of your grandchildren or to finish college or to pick up trash off the sidewalk wherever you walk or whatever your commitment is, not to use plastic bags, it doesn't matter. Whatever your commitment is, acknowledge the commitment. Acknowledge it. Tell somebody else about what it is because that will help you keep it and keep working with it. And stand firm in it. Become a committed person. Becoming a committed person is part of our practice. And ask for help, because we don't do this alone. And when we do that, because the place is right here and the way leads everywhere, the effects spread out from this place and time and lead everywhere in all directions and in all times, in all times, in ways that we cannot imagine. Please ponder commitment this week, and become aware of using wood and other things that come from trees, and thank the trees. Thank you.